So Paul here is writing to Timothy, one of his closest friends whom he has left to pastor the church in a large city in Ephesus, which was the largest city in the Roman province of Asia. And he's giving Timothy some vital words. Uh, Paul is on his way out of this life. And so he knows that Timothy, who's considerably younger, has a ways to go. And he says, Timothy, this is, this is what your course is to be. Likewise, this is what the course of your church is to be. This is the direction you need to be headed. It is to honor and glorify God. And here's how that is to look. And here's how you are to keep this course. That in a nutshell is what Paul is communicating in these two letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy. We'll finish up 1st Timothy today and roll right into 2nd Timothy starting next Sunday, finish that by the end of the year, and then start Genesis in the new year. But in these last 10 verses, it's always interesting to see how an author is going to end any letter. What is he going to say? What, what, what is the lasting impression that he wants to leave on those who are reading? And we see that as Paul wraps this up, he has 16 imperatives. In about 10 verses, he's going to give 16 commands to Timothy of how he expects him to conduct himself as a pastor. The first few verses, verses 11 through 16, you see he addresses Timothy as the man of God, as well as verse 20 and 21. And then in the middle, a few verses, 17 through 19, where Paul is going to address the rich in this present age, which is going to apply to many of us today. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we've got on the chairs near you, I think it's page 853, you'll need a Bible today and we'll need to pray because we need God's help. So let's go to him and ask for that help. Father in heaven, we are before you and we are before only you. You are the one who we are accountable to. You are the one that we will face at the end of this life. You are the one who is worthy of our worship and praise. You are the one who has authored our life, who has numbered our days. You are the one who has truly loved us. So we come before you, God. You know this. We need your help. And we need you to work from the inside out in us. We need you to help us to understand your truth. We need you to help us to apply your truth. We need you to impress upon us what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. You know, God, from the day we were born that we have been hearing from the world what is considered true. And we've been told about ourselves and we've been told about our souls and we've been told about the world and we have been told about you and we've been told about life and we have been told about purpose and we have been told about meaning. And God, your word comes in sharp contrast to a lot of what we've swallowed. It runs deep in us, God. And so, Father, I ask that those lies that we have believed, those misconceptions that we have taken into our minds, that you would dig deep and cut them out and give us your truth so that we could have real joy and real peace living the way you have created us to live. Our author, our creator, our designer, our sustainer. We love you, our great, transcendent, and eminent, and personal, and loving, and gracious God. And pray this and ask this in the name of and for the sake of your Son, Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Please open your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Finishing up here, verses 11 through 21. Let's look first at 11 through 16. Then we'll break it up 17 through 19. And then close verse 20 and 21. 
But listen to this title that Paul gives Timothy right out of the gate. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. This is a title that Timothy has never received from Paul. Paul calls him a lot of things. A lot of things that we read about, and he probably called him a lot of things that we don't read about. But here, he gives him the title. He says, Timothy, I'm going to address you now as a man of God. Now, that may not mean much to us, but if you were Timothy and the Apostle Paul called you a man of God, that was serious. That is big business. If you're Timothy and you know your Bible and you're thinking about who else has that title, you're thinking about men in the Old Testament like David, like Moses, like Elijah, like Samuel, like Elisha. These are called Men of God. And Paul now calls Timothy a man of God. This is not a title that's thrown around. Today we don't feel that same way. Today it's sort of a synonym. People use it anyway to just mean you're a Christian. Maybe even just a notional Christian or a nominal Christian. You're a man of God. You're a, a woman of God. As someone when he first talked to me as a pastor, he says, you're a, I understand that you're a man of the cloth whatever that means. So we have these titles, right? And it just may mean that you're, you're spiritually minded, that you read a Bible, that you believe that there's a God, that you're monotheistic, that you're, you subscribe to the Christian religion or the Judeo-Christian ethic is your guide. Whatever it is, we can mean lots of different things, but we just say, yeah, I'm a man of God or I'm a woman of God. Now, if you're using that term the way the Bible uses that term, you don't get to just throw it around, Not to say that there's junior varsity Christians and there's varsity Christians, but there very clearly is. There are all Christians who are saved and sealed and redeemed and loved and will be carried all the way through until you see the face of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, that's you. And it's an even playing field. But there are also those Christians who are exceptional. Whom God's hand is on in a particular way. They're examples to others. They're often leaders of others. Other Christians are called to imitate them. They're often teachers or preachers. People are looking to them. That is the kind of man that Timothy is. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, you are a man of God. There is a lot riding on how you live your life. And that's why he gives them, as he heads out of this letter, 16 imperatives and commands. And so over the next few verses, it might help to organize it to think of Paul answering four questions for Timothy. These would be the four questions. What is the man of God to flee from? What is the man of God to follow after? What is the man of God to fight for? What is the man of God to be faithful to? Now, if you call yourself a Christian, you want to be a man of God. You want to be... A woman of God. When your days in this life come to an end, you want your history in this life to be that you were a man of God. A woman of God. In other words, that God was at the center of everything. Not you. Not yourself. Not your interests, not your desires, not your agenda, but God. You lived a God-centered life. You lived a gospel-centered life. You live a Christ-centered life. And everything, when people look in, it's so God-centered. You are so consumed with God that it radiates and is evident to others so that others... You're not a self-proclaimed man of God or woman of God, but others, like Paul, looking at Timothy, say, that is a man of God. That is a woman of God. That is our desire. This is what we want as followers of Jesus Christ. So we gain insight here. If that is to be us, what are we fleeing from? What are we following after? What are we fighting for? What are we being faithful to? First, verse 11. What are we fleeing from? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 
That phrase Paul uses over and over again, these things. What have I been talking to you about, Timothy? What have I been telling you to avoid? Different doctrine. He just said that a few verses before, and he started saying that in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I want you to flee from different doctrine. I want you to flee from discontentment. I want you to flee from these things. I want you to flee from the love of money. I want you to run. There are things, as a Christian, we need to get this. There are things that you need to run from. There are things that you need to flee from. Now, Paul's going to get to the fight and how important it is to fight. But it is not always a time for fight. Sometimes it is a time for flight. And there is no shame often in running away from things that you are not able to fight. Now, we might be running from the wrong things. Sometimes we flee from confrontation, and we need to run to confrontation. Sometimes we flee from responsibility, and we need to run to responsibility. But sometimes we run to sin, and we need to flee from sin. Well, here's how it works. There is a time, because you see both and in the Bible. There's a time to stand firm, right? There's a time to remain. There's a time to resist the enemy. And that is not fleeing. That is standing in the face of. But there's also a time where you just need to get out. You You need to run as fast as you can. Now here's what our pride often does. I got this. I can handle this, right? Guys, I'm, an, I'm like an oak tree. I'm like a redwood. Bring it. And we hold on to those verses. Stand firm like that. Resist the enemy and he, what does it say? He will flee from you. I like that. Satan, pointy tail, tucked between his legs, running away. Watching that, I like that. Flee? Come on. I'm a man. I don't run from things. Well, sometimes you need to run. Remember Genesis chapter 39? Joseph in Potiphar's house. I mean, he literally runs. Not metaphorically, literally. God's hand is on his life. God's moving him along in his life. He ends up in the house of Potiphar, who is a leader in the Egyptian government. And he puts Joseph, Joseph does so well, that he puts Joseph in charge of his household. Potiphar's away a lot. So he puts him in charge of his household. One of the things that Potiphar leaves behind in this home is his beautiful wife. So you have beautiful, lonely wife. And you have, we know, attractive Joseph. The Bible actually tells us this dude's attractive. I mean, he's, he's yoked, he's, 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 he's looking good, he's, he's looking right, he's got his toga, whatever it is, but I mean, he's sporting it, and the ladies are thinking, this man's it. So he, here he is in this home over and over again with this, this lonely, attractive woman. That's called a recipe. <laughs> it's not going to go well. You can have all the accountability partners you want, and it's not going to go well. So what... You remember reading about how this woman treats him? Every day, it says, every single day, she comes up to him and makes a pass at him, if you will, and says, would you go to bed with me? Attractive woman, alone, in a big house. Here's Joseph. And every day, she says, hey, listen, no one's here. My husband's gone. Let's have some fun. And what does Joseph say? Every day, he's like, no, no, no. He's thinking about the Lord. He's thinking about his responsibility to, to Potiphar. He says, no, no, no. And then one day, he comes into the house, and she's just she's serious this time. They're not just words anymore. Do you remember what she does? She grabs them. She's like, no, we're... I'm holding on to you. You're not going anywhere. And so she grabs them, and she becomes a seductress, right? She says, will you go to bed with me? Joseph does not stand firm and resist the enemy. Remember what Joseph does? He turns around, the Bible says, and he books out of the house. 
He just runs. He leaves some clothes behind in the process. We're not sure if he's naked, if he's in his underwear, if he just left his coat. We don't know. But he just takes off and literally leaves his clothing in her hands. And he runs. So, Christian, you need to get to a point where you realize when you've gotten to the point where you cannot resist temptation anymore. And it is better, in that case, for you to run and to flee. Maybe you want to be the guy who has struggled with alcohol in the past, and you want to be able to go to the pub with your friends, and you want to be at your friend's house and have a glass of wine. You want to be able to do that and stand firm. But you might not be the person yet that can do that, so you need to run, and you need to avoid, and you need to flee. Guys, maybe you want to be able to get on the Internet and have access and not go to pornographic websites. And you want to be that one who can stand firm and resist and handle it. But you can't. So you just need to stop having Internet access. There just may be a season for that. You might have a relationship. And every time you interact with this person, it just leads to gossip and slander and foolish conversation and babble, he says today. And you want to be able to have that time redeemed. And you want to make it right. You don't want the bad company to corrupt good character. You want those things. But you're just not doing it. So it's more important, lest you sin, that you just get out of there and flee. But pride says, no, I don't want to do that. I can handle it. I don't want to get rid of my computer. Then all my friends are going to ask me, why did you get rid of your computer? And I don't want to tell them. Uh, I just... I just I'm anti-technology now. I just decided technology is just something I, I abhor and I don't want to... Hang on, i got a call. And it just... You can't... You don't want to tell them what's really going on. I said, hey, why, why is your computer not in your house anymore? Well, because every time I get on my computer, I look at porn for two hours. And I'm trying to resist and resist and resist and I'm not, just not able to resist that I... It's better for me to just get rid of it. What are you doing? You're fleeing. You're running. You're fleeing from these things. There may be things you cannot handle. Maybe not yet. Maybe not ever. Better to flee from these things. So Christians, we need to understand that there is not always shame in flight. Sometimes it's wise. And there are things we should run from. Next, the answer is, what is the man of God to follow after, right? The Christian life is running from things and running to things. The Christian life is putting off things and putting on things. Flee from these things, but pursue. In other words, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the things that we are to pursue. These are the things that we're to follow after. You can't get too much of these things. There's never time to flee from these things. God never says, you're kind of overdoing it in the steadfastness department. I think you've, you've got enough faith. There's no need to be more faithful. Okay, You're going overboard with righteousness. That's a, you're godly enough. God never says, it. these are the things that we are to pursue. And to follow after and to press after. And we never, we never let up. There's never a time to flee from this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Verse 12. What is the man of God to fight for? This famous, famous verse. Fight. Timothy, man of God, fight the good fight of the faith. Many of you have heard this before. Okay, this life in Christ is a fight, it's a good fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. That means that things are not going to come easy in this life. It means that we have an opponent. That there is an enemy. 
And we're engaged in battle with that enemy. It means that, real simply and basically, fighting is a good thing. As Christians, we believe that there is a fight. And we believe that fighting is necessary. And we need to be men and women who know how to fight. This is why we don't raise up boys or don't raise up our boys and tell them things like fighting is bad. Fighting is not bad. Fighting is good. You need to be a fighter. I want my boys to be fighters. I want them to be able to battle. And I want them to be able to win. That is why I'm so frustrated with a soccer with a soccer team that doesn't keep score. Have you heard this? I don't understand. It's outside of my mind. Sports, competition, teams, we don't keep score. My obvious question is, well, then how do you know who wins? <laughs> to which the response is, we're not concerned with winning. You're not concerned with... That's like sitting down for dinner and the plate is empty and giving me a fork. Like I'm supposed to eat something. And if you're playing sports, competition, it's okay. The purpose is to win. That is the point. Not give it your best shot or try hard. You're all winners in the end. No. At the end of this game, there will be winners and there will be losers. And I don't want you to be a loser. I want you to be a winner. And you're not going to be a winner unless you fight. So we can just take the fight out of people and the fight out of boys and the fight out of Christians. Now, fighting with your brother, that's not where to fight. But that doesn't mean fighting is a bad thing. Is violence a bad thing? No, violence is not a bad thing. There is a time for violence. We're not pacifists. It's a matter of what are you fighting for and what are you fighting with? And there is a good fight. How about those who are defenseless? God says, fight for them or I'm going to come and fight you. We looked at that verse a couple weeks ago. He says, I will hear their cry. And he says, in no uncertain terms, you better answer them. And if you don't answer them, I'm going to come and find you and kill you. That's God saying, you need to fight. And if you're not going to fight, I'm going to come find you, and we're going to fight. And you don't want to fight God. If someone needs to be defended, someone is defenseless, it's a time to fight. Your relationship with Christ, your Christian life, is a fight. You cannot do it sitting in your chair. You cannot do it laying on your back. You cannot do it with your eyes closed. You cannot do it without some kind of spiritual work and spiritual exercise and spiritual passion. You cannot do this. It is a fight. It's a good fight of the faith. In other words, you fight with faith. I mean, how is this battle going to be won? And the answer is with faith. That is your weapon. If you haven't read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, you should read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory he wrote about the Christian life when he was in prison in the 17th century, in the prison for preaching the gospel. And he writes this book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It tells the story of a man named Christian. A man named Christian who is going on this journey. And he's headed for, his goal is the celestial city, which is heaven. And so the book is his Christian life. And it doesn't go well. And if there's anything that he has to do, it is to fight. Now, some of you people, before you became a Christian, they tried to get you to become a Christian by actually saying the opposite of this. That you feel like your life's just full of tension, and it just feels like a battle, and everything's working against you. You should become a Christian, right? And God's like the carrot that's dangled out in front of you. And if you become a Christian, things are going to go better. 
your life will go better. All you need is Jesus, and then you can expect your circumstances to change. In fact, if you're a really good Christian, you can expect money. You can expect fortune. You can expect the car you want, the house you want, the estate you want. If you have enough faith and you live right and are a really good, elite Christian. So just come, come to Jesus. And everybody, right, everybody comes to that Jesus. Everybody, nobody in the seats. Everyone comes forward. Because it's, say a prayer, say these words, say you believe, and get this. Everything going smoothly in your life. And everyone says yes to that. And, and some of you either did or you know people who did. And then they're resentful about a week or two later when they realize that you lied to me. My life is worse than it was two weeks ago. Now God is good. And I have hope in Christ. And I have peace. And I have joy that's incomparable. But the circumstances don't get better. So it is necessary to be a people who know how to fight. So in Pilgrim's Progress, what is the weapon, though, that he's using over and over and over again? The weapon is it's the good fight of faith. It's faith. It's believing. It's being in the fight and believing that God's word is true. Believing that, God, you are good. That your hand is behind this. That you are in control. That you're going to be glorified. That you know what's best for me. That you love me. That nothing can separate me from your love. That you are going to work this out. That, that, that you are reigning. That you are supreme. That you've designed all of this. It is the, the fight to have faith. To believe those promises when everything else is going to tell me, no, God doesn't love you. God's abandoned you. God doesn't care for you. He is not shepherding you. He's punishing you. You're under his thumb. He's left you all alone. And your circumstances will feel that way. And you've got to fight to have faith to believe the truth. So he describes it as a battle, as a war. Now, Paul, at the end of his life, we'll read in a couple months in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He looks back on his life and says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is the testimony we want. You want at the end of your life, Right? Do you? The end of your life to look back. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. You understand when Paul says that he finished the race, that he fought the good fight, he's not saying, I'm perfect now. When he says, I fought the good fight, he doesn't say, yeah, I gave up sin four years ago. He's not saying, I've got this unblemished track record. This is what he's saying. That a whole lot has gone down these last years of my life. But here I am at the end of it, and I have faith. I believe God. I believe His Word. I love Him. He loves me. I'm my beloved. He is mine. I'm ready to see Him face to face. And that's the testimony that all of us want. He describes this fight. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the confession in the presence of many witnesses. So you fight the good fight. Take hold. It's another way of saying this. Timothy, take hold of your life. Eternal life. That's described in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. What is this we're taking hold of? This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life means a life consumed with Jesus. When we hear eternal life, we think uh, forever. That's true. 
we focus too much on the word eternal and miss the life. The eternal life that we're supposed to take hold of. He's not saying, I just want you to really grab hold of this idea that you are never going to die. I mean, that's true. That's great. That's beautiful. That's our inheritance. We're looking forward to that. But eternal life is not just something that will come. It's something that you have as a Christian right now. You have eternal life right now. And eternal life right now means that you have full, joyful, satisfying life because of your love for Christ. And so we are taking hold of the eternal life the more that we live and organize this life around Jesus Christ. When you do that, you are taking hold of your life. You're taking hold of eternal life. But way too often, again, it's the opposite of fighting in this life. Way too often, we're not taking hold of our life. Our life is just taking a hold of us. We're just victims to our circumstances and victims of our schedule and enslaved to our days. And some of you are in that right now. And you need to hear Paul's admonishment to take a hold, like grab it by the horns. Take a hold of your life. You've been given eternal life in Christ. And you've got one shot at this. You've got a year, five years, ten years, maybe thirty. You don't know. You've got a life that God has given you. Take hold of that life. Fight and bring honor to God. The temptation, though, is to just be lazy, right? The temptation is to not fight. Temptation is just to just be enslaved to my life and enslaved to my schedule and enslaved to my routines and to, and to not make these things and use them for God's good and God's glory, but to just be enslaved to this. We need to fight. Fight the fight of faith. I know I need faith. So I know the more faith I have, the more I believe God's word, the better I will fight. So I hear Romans ten seventeen that says, faith comes, okay, I want faith, by hearing the words of Christ. By hearing the word of God. So what, is, what are God's means for fighting this fight, for increasing your faith, reading his word? This is why when we're struggling, and we're struggling, and we're not fighting well, and we're getting knocked on our back, it is not just a pat answer to say you need to get in God's Word. It is the answer. It may not be as appealing as you want. It may not be snappy. It may not be in a book with a great cover. It may not be cutting edge, but these are the means that God says that He uses to increase your faith. That's why, I mean, many of you have come to me, and you come, and we, we talk, right? And you're looking for counseling, and you're looking for direction, and you've, you just hit this wall in your Christian life, or this hole that you keep falling into. You say, I just want to move past this, and I'm not fighting well. And I don't have joy like I used to, and I, I, I'm discouraged, and I'm depressed, and I'm, I'm not believing. That's why, what is the very first thing we always talk about? I want to hear about your devotional life. Are you communing with God? Are you reading His Word? And that's why, right? When the answer is, well, no, I haven't read the Word in a month. That's why. Counseling session over. That was easy. We're done. I mean, it's not that, you know. <laughs> I am never going to Him for counsel. It's not that cut and dry, but basically it is. Right? Take two of these and call me in the morning. Read your Bible for a few weeks or for a month. Do you need help? Do you need a Bible reading plan? Do you need Braille? I mean, what do you need? They'll get it to you, but you need to read the Bible. And if you don't read the Bible, I know, this is so silly, but I mean, isn't this so often what the problem is? It's like the big E on the I chart. We're, uh, we're just looking everywhere else. 
and miss it. I need to be in the Word. And if you're not in the Word, just expect that you're going to fall into the hole. You're going to actually repel into the hole. You're going to set up your line and, and, and go because you're not doing what you need to be doing. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God or prayer. Prayer. You want faith? Ask for faith. Mark 9, 24. You remember the man? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, you can't relate to that. Okay, I believe, God. You know I believe. I love you. I know your words are true. I've seen you work miracles on my life. I believe the gospel. But I'm really struggling to believe it right now. And I'm really struggling to apply it. I believe, but help my unbelief. Are you praying? Are you reading the Word? What about super practical things? Just like, like our, our sleep and our eating and our exercising. And these are just, these are just physical, practical, no-brainer things that so many of us as Christians, we just neglect and we end up set up for failure and we're not fighting the way we need to fight. Well, I'm not reading the Word. Well, why aren't you reading the Word? Well, I can't find a time to do it. Why don't you do it in the morning before you do anything? Well, I'm not a morning person. If I hear one more, I'm not a morning person. Gonna, I'm going to punch you in the teeth. There is no, the Bible does not talk about, right, this is, it's funny. The Bible does not talk about classes of people, right? There are morning people and there are night people. And if you're a morning person, here's God's word for you. And if you're a night person, here's God's word for you. And typically, this is what you find out. First is, well, I'm not a morning person. I try to read God's word and I just can't get into it in the morning. So this is the, the follow-up question. At, well, what time do you go to bed? Well, because I'm a night person, I go to bed at 2 in the morning. Could it be, I'm just going to throw it out there, that maybe you're having a hard time reading the Bible in the morning because you only slept three hours. Right, but these, these practical issues in our life, I mean, when are you eating? What are you eating? Right? I did that in college, right? I had like eight meals a day, like full meals. And about one or two in the morning, we play video games and go and eat like 10 jack-in-the-box tacos. And I would get up in the morning, and I had, we called it the itis, and I couldn't function, I couldn't think, I couldn't even see straight, and I was, but I was not a morning person. It's not that I wasn't a morning person, I was just a, I was a dumb person. And I was being foolish. But look, so we look and we laugh and we see, but what are the spiritual consequences for that? All I'm saying is just look at everything. Examine your life. It's a fight. You're going to have to fight. That means you're going to do things you don't want to do. But if you want to finish the race, if you want to win, and that is see Jesus face to face, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. It is not going to be easy. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to toil, the Bible says. You're going to have to work hard. And we must commit to this and take hold of our eternal life if we expect to fight the good fight. This is what we fight for. What are we to be faithful to? Verses 13 through 15. I charge you in the presence of God This is a serious charge he gives. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. So what is the man of God to be faithful to? What is the charge that Paul gives Timothy? First, look at the seriousness of the charge. He says, I charge you. Paul, Paul, this is what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy, I'm going to charge you to do something. It's like this. Now, hang on a minute. I want you to understand how serious this is. So I'm going to bring in a couple witnesses. I want them to hear this charge that I'm giving you. You ever done that? Maybe you're talking to somebody. He said, hey, hey, listen, actually, you know what? Hang on. Come over here. I want you to hear what I'm telling him. I want you to hold him accountable. 
I want you to be a witness to what's going on here. And then you have a conversation. You ever had an employer pull you into his office and your employer's employer is in the office? And maybe your employer's employer's employer is in the office? What it, so you feel the weight. This isn't funny anymore. This is serious. We couldn't be more serious. We're going to bring in some witnesses. This is what Paul says, Timothy, I charge you. He says, hang on a minute. Who does he bring in? He says, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. There is no one heavier to bring in. And what is the charge? Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. He says, Timothy, I charge you, keep the faith. Keep the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Cling to the calling that God has given you. See it through to the end. Do not stain it. Fight. Take hold. Keep the commandment. He's telling Timothy, do not give up. And how long? You love Paul's answer? I mean, do you? Okay, I see what I'm fleeing from. I see what I'm following after. I see what I'm fighting for. I see what I'm to be faithful to. Okay, how long? This is what Paul does not say. He does not say just give it your best shot. He does not say just give it, give it, give it, give a go at it. He says give it a year, give it two years, give it three years. Okay, then take, take a break. Okay, you got retirement to look forward to. You got that spiritual vacation to look forward to. But all I'm asking you to do is just press on for a while. And the payoff's going to be great. And just around the corner, he says, I want you to do these things. And I want you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until. This is when you get to take your foot off the throttle. This is when you get to back off. All of us. Until. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. How long do we fight like this? He makes it so simple. He says, here's when you can stop fighting. When you see Jesus face to face. That's the whistle. When you see Jesus face to face, you heard the whistle, game over, you can stop fighting. That's true for you, and that's true for me. There is no spiritual halftime. There is no I'm winded and I need a break. When it comes to this fight of the faith, we fight hard. Until we see Jesus. That doesn't mean that in Christ there is not rest. I mean in Christ there is rest. And in Christ there is peace. But that does not mean. That the rest and the peace that you have in Christ. Is a spiritual break. Where you stop fighting sin. And fighting for faith. And fighting for godliness. And fighting for holiness. That fight doesn't stop. Until you see Jesus face to face. And you will see Jesus face to face in one of two ways. There are only two options. Not in a dream, not in a vision, not at the foot of your bed in the middle of the night, not carved in some oak tree, nothing like that. You will see Jesus face to face either when Jesus comes back. Jesus could come back this afternoon. And we're supposed to become quickly Christians. Most of us are take your time Christians. But we're supposed to become quickly. Jesus, I I see the news. I read the newspaper. I know the people. Okay, we long for the suffering and the pain and the unjustness to end. And we want justice and righteousness and God and love and perfection. We want that to usher in right now. And so we want Jesus to come right now. And some of us, that may be when we see Jesus face to face. But if he does not come back before you die, then when you die... 
That is when you see Jesus face to face. Because to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And when you die, you will go to be with Him in paradise. And that is when the whistle blows. That is when the fight is over. That is when you're in a state, okay, where there is no sin anymore. That is when you no longer have to take hold of this life and to sweat and to fight and to toil. But not until then. That's why Martin Luther, when he wrote the 95 Theses, that he said, all of life is repentance. Listen, some of you have a start and stop Christianity. And you're like a sprinter. Okay, in that analogy, you want to be the marathon runner. You pursue Christ. You love Him. You serve Him. You give it a few months. You give it a year. And it's the history of your life. And then you take a spiritual halftime. And you just check out. And you disappear. And your life is characterized by that. Start and stop. Start and stop. Some of you think that Christianity is... I repented once a long time ago and I have my came to Jesus moment and I'm done and now I just do what I want. And the truth is, is that all of life is repentance every day. If I ask you the question, what have you been repenting from lately? And you say, I don't know. Then the first thing you can repent of is not knowing. Because you're not paying attention to the fight. John Calvin says in regards to this verse, in regards to our life, he says, we are not permitted to pause or slacken in the middle. And that is the truth. Our rest will come when the fight is over, when we see Jesus face to face. So we should not expect in this lifetime to have the kind of relief that we'll have in heaven. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, right before he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Which is what Paul's talking about. Fight the good fight. Endure to the end. Right before that, Jesus says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That, by the way, that's Jesus' call to become a Christian. That's his selling point. Okay, Jesus is the closer, right? And he comes in and says, you're going to be hated for my name's sake. Now, no one comes forward in that altar call. Won't you come? You each today, if you would just say, you have the opportunity to be hated by all for my name's sake. No one comes forward. Unless the Holy Spirit draws them. Jesus said, this is what you can expect. No prosperity gospel in Jesus. Talks a lot about heaven. Talks a lot about abundant joy in this life. And the easy burden and yoke that Jesus is. In other words, not trying to earn your salvation, but knowing that you have it in Christ. I mean, there's just nothing, nothing better. But circumstantially, and when it comes to pain, and when it comes to suffering, Jesus on no uncertain terms says it's going to be rough. You can expect that it's going to be rough. But what's the promise? Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. This is, this is what God says when he says, okay, in your life, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering, but fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, 
they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is God. This is why Paul gives the benediction in these verses following where it says, He was the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one can ever see, has never been seen. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But Paul says this, this fight, this life is going to be a fight. Take hold of the eternal life. Flee from this. Run to this. You can expect that in this life. If you are a Christian, hear this, please, so you're not surprised. Or so that it doesn't destroy your theology. Or upheave your perception of God. Know this and expect this. That in your life, if you love Jesus because He loves you, He is going to bring the pain. Without a doubt, He is going to bring pain into your life. And He will bring pain into your life because He loves you. And you will feel, like I said, you will feel like you are drowning. And he says, you're not drowning. You will feel like the earth has given way beneath you. You will feel like you are buried under tons of soil. You will feel like your life is over. And he will say, I have not consumed you. You will feel like the fire is burning you to death. And he says, I am not burning you to death. I am with you. Do you see this in in the Old Testament? You see God over and over and over again with His people whom He loves, bringing pain and suffering. You cannot get around it. Oftentimes it's because of their sin, sometimes not because of their sin, but you can be certain that God brings pain. And that was really hard for me to accept. It's been difficult for some of you to accept. But here it is over and over and over again. God handing Israel over, handing his family over, handing those he loves over. I thought you loved them, God. I would never do that with my child. But God's love is greater than my love. And his ways are higher than my ways. And I saw this phrase this last year that God says over and over again to his people. He tells them the pain is coming, by the way. He says, get ready. Buckle up. The pain is coming. But here's what he says over and over and over again. And I finally saw this is his grace. This is his goodness. Over and over again to his people. He says, I'm going to bring the pain. But I will not make an end of you. And we deserve to be ended. And God's grace over and over and over again with those whom he loves. He says, it's, this is going to be rough. Friends, God says, this is, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt deeply. Then God in his grace, he says this. My beloved, I will not make an end of you. This is not the end. This is the beginning. I am pouring the foundation for you to feel more love than you thought was possible. I am pouring the foundation for you to know me and to know my goodness and to know my greatness and to know my justice and to know my love for you in ways that you would not otherwise know. No one No one is in heaven telling God, I wish you did things differently. The testimony of all of us, through all that we're going to go through, we will share one testimony in heaven when we see everything play out. And our testimony will be, I am so glad you did everything exactly the way you did it. 
every cut, every thrust, every injury, every wound. I see now how you use this for my good and for your glory. I see now how I wouldn't love you the way I love you if it wasn't for that. I see now how good you are, how glorious you are in a way I would not have seen. I am so glad, God, you did things exactly the way you did them. But now, in this life, it is a fight to believe that. So he says, fight the good fight of faith. And he has some words here for the rich in this present age. To the rich in this present age, Paul says, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I believe there was a lot of wealthy people in Ephesus, just like there's a lot of wealthy people in this room today. Certainly by the world's standards, 90% of us are wealthy. And you see, this is how this fits in everything that Paul is saying. Because there, in wealth, lies a great threat. A great great threat to use something else other than faith to get through this life. A great temptation to depend on things other than God. A great temptation to treasure things other than God. And those of us who are rich in this present age are especially susceptible to that temptation. It is so easy for us to depend, the way he says it now, to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Why do I need God? I've got a million different ways I can check out of this situation. Why do I need faith? Why do I need to depend on Him? I can just buy this. I can just buy that. He says, do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hopes on God. And who is God? He says, the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is our great benefactor. God is the one. God is the one who pours out His riches. He says elsewhere in Philippians that He will meet all our needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. So how are you rich as a Christian? You're rich in Christ. You're rich because you have Christ. He's affirming again that money is not evil. There are rich people who are wicked and there are rich people who are righteous. And having a lot of money does not make you a wicked sinner. You can be righteous, and God can be well pleased with you, and you can be rich. The opposite is also not true. That it is those who are poor that are truly righteous. Some are poor because they're wicked. Some are poor because they're righteous. It is the temptation that lies within wealth. And it is how we use wealth that Paul offers as the remedy. So do good, he says. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. And here will be the result. They will store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold, there it is again, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then he comes back and says, Oh, Timothy, verse 20. Right, man of God, Oh, Timothy, let me wrap up. Let me wrap up what I've said here. Guard. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. If you look at chapter 1, verse 3 and following, he says almost the same thing he did at the onset of his letter, at the end of his letter. 
Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Specifically, he's talking about God's word. Don't mind yourself with the babble, he calls it. Hey, forget the babble and these endless genealogies and the foolish controversies and the silly arguments and stay away from these people and the different doctrine and the gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Stay away from that and guard that deposit that has been entrusted to you. What has been entrusted to you, Timothy? It is the Word of God. Guard the Word of God. Help your church to guard the Word of God. What has he said in this letter? Church, you are the pillar and buttress of the truth. You're the pillar. You're holding the Word, the truth of God up on display to the world. You're the buttress of the truth. You're supporting the truth. You're promoting the truth. You are preaching the truth. You are teaching the truth. Guard that. Do not become a man, Timothy. Do not become a church. It is not to guard that deposit of God's Word that has been entrusted to you. Do not misuse it. Do not let it decay in you or in your church. If you are, if we are a generation that does not guard God's Word, then the next generation will come behind us and they won't know how to guard God's Word. And then the generation after that will reject God's Word. So your kids won't know how to defend God's truth and then your grandchildren will reject God's truth. That is the trajectory that we are on if we don't guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. I mean, just again, it's a theme. Do we really need to talk this much about doctrine? Is it really important that I have good theology? Is it really important that it's something beyond just Jesus loves me and God loves you and that's enough and that settles it? it? Is it really important to know what this verse teaches? Is it really important that I read God's word over and over and over again? Is it really important that I hear the gospel over and over and over again? Is it really important that every area of my life be informed by God's word? Is it really important that I figure out what the implications are on my personal life and on my family and on my church and in my workplace and on my neighborhood? Is it really important that I be able to distinguish good doctrine from different doctrine and right doctrine from wrong doctrine? Is it really important that we have these classes? Is it really important that we think about what we're praying? Is it really important that our songs have good gospel truth? Is it really important that we labor in preaching? The answer to all of that is absolutely. Because we have been charged by God through Paul to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. And then how is this possible? How does he end his letter? This is curious. Most letters written in this Greco-Roman society, it was common for them, especially letters full of instruction and admonishment like this, the letter would end with something like, be strong. That's how most letters from our world end today. Do this and be strong. Tap in here. That's right. You get everything you need right there. Right? Just, just say it to yourself over and over again in the mirror. It'll make it true. You've tried it, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. You've tried that. You've tried to just buckle down. You've tried to grit your teeth. You've tried to do this on your own strength. This is the lie of the world. Don't worry about God or you can get to God. Or He doesn't end his letter with be strong. Paul ends his letter with, Grace be with you. Here's the truth for Timothy. Here's the truth for us as Christians. Paul is saying to Timothy, here's the deal, Timothy, as usual, let me give you a whole list of things that are impossible to do. And Paul says as much as this, Timothy, you, you don't have a prayer apart from God's grace. That is true for us today, friends. You want to live life the way you're called to live life, where your Creator wants you to live life? You want to see Him face to face? You want to honor Him? You want to glorify Him? You don't have a prayer. But you know what else you have? 
grace. You have God's grace. You have God's strength. You have God's abilities. You have God's love. If we're going to fight this good fight of the faith, our own personal inherent strength is not the key ingredient. Grace is. It is all of grace. We need God's grace. So we better be a people who are utilizing the means of grace. I'm going to read your word, Lord. I'm going to commune with you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be with your people. I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to pursue godliness. I'm going to flee from these things. God, this is the dialogue, Christian. God, give me the grace to do it. You know what God's answer to that prayer is? Christian, do you know what God's answer to that prayer is? You still have it. Oh, it's a promise over and over and over and over and over. You have it. You've had it. You shall have it. My grace is sufficient for you. So when we celebrate communion every week, this is what we are remembering. We're remembering where God has been most gracious to us. We're remembering where the foundation of his grace is. The cross, where God came, where God came and died, where God came and suffered his own wrath, where Jesus came and in my place, he suffered the wrath of God so that I could no longer be an object of wrath, but I could be an object of God's mercy and be reconciled to him. And have full life in and for him. That is only made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is central. The gospel is central. Jesus Christ is central. And so we eat bread and drink juice every single week to remember that body. And to remember that blood. And to remember the cost for our salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the fight that you have fought on our behalf. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to suffer and to die. And to take the punishment that I deserve. To take the wrath that I deserve. So that you could still be a just God, but also be a merciful God who welcomes me into your home. I pray that you would open more and more eyes to see who you are and what you've done. Pray that in the rest of our time this morning, that Lord, you would be glorified and you would be praised as your people sing to you, as your people obey you through communion, as your people remember who you are, God and what you have done. We pray this in the great and precious name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.